Hello and welcome to the Niche Podcast for Friday, February 8th, 2013. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Kelly Shaver. And we're here to talk about building apps that run everywhere. This week, getting clever with Amazon's Elastic Block Store, redefining wireframes in the context of responsive web design, and our growing obsession with jackbooks. Please stay tuned. The Niche Podcast is next. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Well, I am uh, coming to you and the dear listener from balmy Grand Cayman Islands. Well, that's not what it's called. <laughs> from the Cayman Islands, specific, <laughs> specifically Grand Cayman. And I hope, dear listener, you appreciate that I shut off the air conditioner so that we could record in relative silence. Yeah, that's just, I'm just kind of jealous that you're somewhere that needs an air conditioner. <laughs> exactly. So it's, uh, you know, palm trees and all that. Very nice. I wore wool socks, which was a mistake. <laughs> but they were comfortable wool socks. Awesome wool socks. Handmade, hand-knit wool socks, but they're a little too warm for the Bahamas. The Caribbean. Yeah. So, hopefully uh, the sound is, you know, I don't have my regular rig, so hopefully the sound will be reasonably good, and hopefully the lag won't be too bad, because we have a uh, sort of third-world internet connection, as our friends at Infinite would say. Yeah, yeah, and um, I'm, I'm not on my good mic tonight either, so I, I didn't, want to make you, didn't want to make you feel bad, so. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. And the dear listener will be sending <laughs> be sending all your money back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, actually, I, I just wanted to sit on the couch. <laughs> well, hopefully we can fix it in post-production. Yeah, right. <laughs> it took us, what, like 41 episodes to fix our post-production. Yeah. What are we at, 43? I think this is 43. Yes, this is this is this is 43. Very exciting. So actually, that's that is a good segue into housekeeping. Um, I, we should do something fun for the 50th episode. I'm not sure what yet. Do you have any ideas? Have you thought about it at all? Um, unless you want to go back through old tapes and, well, uh, not tapes, but old <laughs> recordings and, and pull out a blooper reel. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> I'm not sure. It sounds like a lot of work. Maybe maybe we could do a Q&A from our, our three listeners and then have like one or two questions. <laughs> yeah, maybe a live episode. Maybe we should do a live episode for the 50th one. That'd be fun. Do like a, a Google Hangout or something. That would be. Yeah, it'd be fun. Yeah, all right. What do you th- so, dear listener, you know how to get in touch with us. Let us know what you think. Would you be into a uh, into a, a Google Hangout or something like that? Some kind of like live chat. We should do that. Would be fun. That would be fun. It would be fun. Yeah. So speaking of going through back episodes, the transcriptionist turned in the first uh, transcription. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was just uh, just today. I got a um, transcript of the first, uh, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a niche podcast episode. I had her do a, um, a session that I did at BDConf that had a video with slides uh, that I was hoping would make it a little easier for her to translate some of the jargon. And she did an amazing job. So I'm looking forward to, I, I already, I had her, like mere hours ago, 
uh, send her a link to the podcast. So she's going to start transcribing all the episodes, starting with the most recent one and working her way back to the oldest ones. So once that's awesome. yeah, so once that's done, we will be able to find. We can do a search for laughs and find <laughs> find all the funny bits. <laughs> yes, yes, we can. Um... Search for weeds and, and all kinds of stuff. Exactly. So I have to tell you, I was super, super impressed. I couldn't be more happy with the results of, of what she was able to type up. In fact, the, the video that I did, I embedded a video inside of my talk. So like the talk was about the future of um, computing devices and kind of like this, you know, that the touch screen is actually... A limitation of smartphones and that if we got rid of it, it would free up a lot of um, use cases and it would allow us to be connected more than we currently are. And in the middle of the video, in order to put it in context, I had, uh, I did a, like a three minute video outtake of Steve Jobs 2007 uh, keynote when he introduced the original iPhone. Nobody ever heard about it. There were no leaks. It was complete it was a complete surprise to you, me, and everyone. And she even transcribed that. Oh, nice. Yeah. It was like, she did it like a script, like a play. There's like, you know, Jonathan said this. And then like, and then it was funny too, because I don't know if she, I don't know if she knows who Steve Jobs is because she put Apple spokesman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I was like, yeah, that's an Apple spokesman. Yeah. So you can say that. Yeah. So sh- shout out. I'll, I'll actually provide links to if anybody else is looking for transcription services, it couldn't be more affordable. And uh, this woman is just wonderful. She's in the Philippines and I'll, I'll, I don't know if I can pronounce her name correctly. And I know she's going to listen to this. So I, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't want to bung it up. But anyway, we'll post a link to her, uh, her profile on Odesk. So very, I'm very excited about that. That's that's awesome. Mm. Yeah, um, we'll have to we'll have to build an API for our podcast now. Mm. I like that. I don't want to jump ahead to the Jackbooks thing too soon, but that is tempting. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that happened was I did a I did a search for me saying you know because I say that all the time. I can't stop saying you know. And uh, it only came up 68 times in 60 minutes, so I'm I'm keeping it <laughs> I'm keeping it to roughly one you know per minute. Yeah, that's I have some bad ones too. So it's gonna she could she could edit some of those out. Yeah, I don't know. I'm torn. What do you think? Should should we edit them or should we like let them go like verbatim? I don't know. Yeah, we'll have to decide that. That's another question for the dear listener, because I they don't they yes. don't read very well, but I think there's a value in having it verbatim. So I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. I could I could go either way. Mm. I think I guess the easiest thing to do is just leave them verbatim for now and see what people think. So yeah. Anyway, that's pretty exciting. Or what happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. So, all right. So, what are we talking we about? We have this? a text version of our drinking game now. Exactly. It's like it's like uh, we have a like bingo API. 
So this, the, I think our first topic is is super interesting. I think it's uh, I I'm I think I'm pretty much the the clueless one here. I sort of know uh, about uh, Elastic Block Store, Amazon's EBS, and it's one of those things that I kind of took for granted as just like a fundamental thing that was behind the scenes of uh, Amazon EC2 instances. Uh, but we've got this migration going on that required us to really get under the hood and differentiate between EBS and the other default storage, which is, uh, what's it called? Uh, the local instance storage. Local instance storage, right. And there, you know, there's pros and cons to each one and there are differences to both. And, and you know, with a generally, uh, we haven't had to, like I said, we haven't had to really dig into it too much because the basic setup that we've been using has been fine for everything. Um, and if we have a lot of storage, we usually put it on S3. But this particular situation uh, requires a lot of storage, and we can't move immediately to S3. So we had to, to sort of get a little clever with EBS. And uh, and I guess, you know, we want to just kind of like talk about the difference between uh, <clears throat> local instance store in EBS, the main differences, and then uh, maybe talk a little bit about how we decided to use it. Sure. And actually, I think, I believe EBS is the default now. Um, but then when they go through and they advertise and they're talking about their, their different instance types and and all of that, they, they highlight uh, the amount of local instance storage available to each instance type so you know you don't want to don't want to mistake one for the other there mm. and um, the the different okay so the difference is uh, you have local instance storage which is it's essentially it's it's like um, it's like virtual storage space you power up the the EC2 instance and and then you have this this amount of space that's allotted to you varying amounts based on the size of the instance that you can read to write from and yeah you know, just just like a just like a like 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 any hard drive uh, but the difference there is that if that instance is ever stopped then everything that's that's in that local instant storage just disappears ceases to exist yeah isn't that crazy yeah yeah you can reboot and it stays there and it's fine but if you stop the instance uh, you know, it's gone. Yeah, so this is super shocking to me. And, it, it, and the dear listener might be like, well, why would you want that? And the the use case is that you might spin up a bunch of EC2 instances where you just want to process a bunch of stuff and you kind of need all this scratch space, like like temp directory type stuff right. to process things or maybe you keep your logs in there. Yeah, like maybe you're maybe you're transcoding video before you move it into S3 or something like that. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it definitely wasn't what we needed. Right, right. For for a lot of cases where you don't need, if you, if you have if you have a lot of temporary data, then it's fine. But if you need to be sure that it's going to persist, no matter what, then then it needs to it needs to go on an EBS volume. And, and you know the another difference there is that EBS volumes you can move those around, you can you can move them and swap them out between instances and and 
So they're you know they're they're portable. <laughs> right. I think of them. I, I think of the EBS instances as like an external hard drive, and yeah, like your laptop is the is the EC2 instance. That's like the brain where your code is, and then you've got this like big honking external hard drive hanging off there, and that's the EBS volume. And you could plug it into different laptops, aka EC2 instances, uh, and it'll persist whether those you know it's a an, hundred EC2 instances or or whatever. It's just like another mount point. Yeah, yeah, that's the best way to um, the best way to think of it. Really, is just as a as a as a hard drive in the cloud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're we've got this sort of weird situation where, you know, you're uh, the consideration when you're there's a cost consideration when you're picking an instance size, and there are a bunch of different properties of an instance, like how much processing power and how much memory and how much uh, you know. Uh, storage it has and in the you know you have this kind of matrix of costs that you're like okay do we get this big honkin ec2 instance or do we just use a little one to put all the kind of like the code files on and then have these ebs volumes that are i don't know if it's fair to say they're dumber because they still you know have can run executable code and stuff not that we're using it that way but but you know that we're basically mounting them as drives and could theoretically store like apps in there right like a web app yeah you can you could install so you could install software to them you could you could um load an ami onto them or or an, a, a disk image that you've saved from something else onto them or so you know you could you know, you can you can use them for more for more than just a hard drive, but in our particular instance, we're we're primarily using them for storage. And should also mention that the EC2 instances, just 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 your bare bones EC2 instances instance, has uh, an eight gigabyte EBS volume backing it. So your your operating system and all of your system software that you install on your EBS volume uh, goes on on that eight gig. Or, or on your EC2 instance goes on that eight gig uh, EBS volume, and then you just create additional ones. Right. So that's the reason why you can stop your. That's why you can spin up an instance, upload some files to you know like upload a website to it, and then stop it and start it again, and the website is still there because the 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 basically like the the OS partition. I, I think of it like I keep thinking of it in terms of a laptop, like the OS partition is on an EBS volume. Uh, but the whole thing is so abstracted; it's difficult to talk about. Yeah, and that's that's another. So, I mean, in a lot of cases, that that eight gigs is all you need because maybe you have a web app and you install it. If you don't have a ton of user-generated content, or if all that user-generated content is stored in a database that's on maybe an RDS instance or something like that, then you're never going to need to add additional EBS volumes because eight gigs is plenty for your operating system and. You know, a few hundred megabytes of, of app code. Yeah, which is funny because it's about half the size of what I have on my phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the dear listener might wonder, well, why aren't we using S3 for the storage? And uh, in our particular case, that is because it would require a rewrite to an application that we're migrating to AWS. Uh, but there could be other situations where you weren't just migrating static files. And if you were, so the big difference to me between EBS and S3 is that S3 is more for just like static stuff. 
even though they they have enabled like web hosting on S3, but but basically it's static stuff. And EBS is like a part of your file system that you know can have like execute Ruby or PHP or something like that. Yeah, and it's a lot easier. I feel like I feel like I don't I don't know I haven't I haven't dug deep enough into S3 because as you said we must I mostly just use it for storage. So typically the only things I end up doing on S3 are are adding stuff and deleting stuff. I haven't looked into how the the S3 API works for for updating and modifying data that's on there, but I feel like it's probably I feel like it's probably more just for that, like the add and delete type stuff is a is a better workflow than storing storing things on there that get modified a lot. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I I'm in the same situation. I've never updated anything. I just replace it with something. Um, it's virtually always. Oh, I'm trying to think. Almost everything I store there is some kind of binary file, like uh, an image, an audio file, or a video. Uh, but you can you can set a bucket, which is basically a directory. You can set a bucket to be like a web like web hosted and put an HTML file in there and have it actually. Um, I haven't messed around with that, but it is kind of kind of reminds me of like GitHub Pages or something. It'd be a really easy way to host a static website. Yeah, I wonder if you could put something. I wonder if you could put something like like Margo or, or Fargo or Jekyll or, or what have you on there. I. Don't think the PHP would execute. I think it's limited to HTML, but I do, I don't know what the web server is. Guess you could use a static site in order like Jekyll and then just push to it. Yes, that makes sense. Put hooks in GitHub and just have it have it push to EC2. Yeah, using using the API. Exactly. So it was a, definitely a fun week with Amazon. I get some really exciting. It's just like so great to think back i mean it's easy for me to think back to when <laughs> you know you basically i had to talk on the phone with a wire like a stretchy wire attached to the wall and now we can like you know spin up a server and it's just like it's like crazy how much power is available to people for pennies yeah the the amount of processing power you get for 15 dollars a month yeah it's crazy and I'm like I'm paying less to AWS now per month. I'm probably paying like 200, 250 bucks a month to Amazon for like ten times the resources and flexibility as I was getting from GoDaddy, which was my previous hosting solution. Where you know it's just I mean it's just a joke. Like when I think about it, I I actually got embarrassed when I just said that. You know what I mean? It's so pathetic. Yeah, like, oh, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe it's not even the GoDaddy part. It's like I can't believe I had a dedicated server. Like it's just so embarrassed. <laughs> it's like so embarrassingly underutilized. It's just sitting there with a couple of HTML files on it for crying out loud. So dumb. Yeah, I got. I even got to the point where I felt kind of. I felt kind of limited just having a, a VPS on Linode, and, and I love Linode as a company, and they have some cloud service offerings now that they didn't have before. So, um, so there's that. But even even so, it got to the point there where just having like a single VPS, like, like that that felt so limiting. Yeah, it just it's just like it feels so wasteful or something. I don't know. 
I don't know. The one the one thing I will uh, say in their favor, so like you know the the GoDaddies of the world or the rack spaces, is that they will. You do know every month exactly how much it's going to cost. You know they're they're like it is going to be ninety nine bucks a month for this uh, dedicated server or whatever. Yeah. Whereas my my AWS bill. Right. Some sometimes my bill is fourteen dollars a month. Sometimes it's twenty seven. Sometimes it's thirty two. It it all depends. Right. That's the thing. It's like a fraction of the cost, but you don't know what the cost is. But yeah. it doesn't matter. <laughs> so, you know. But speaking of that, I have to do a quick shout out to Parse dot com, which I think I'm falling in love with, because <laughs> <laughs> it's. Parse.com is a very uh, a very apps that run everywhere type of backend as a service that um, that allows you to create an API on the fly. Not just an API, but it also has a has client libraries for iOS, Android, Windows Phone. There's a REST client. There's a JavaScript client. Uh, there's a couple of others I can't even remember. Uh, the syntax is is uh, the API is the same for all of them, although of course the syntax is different between Ruby and PHP, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, it it allows you to. I mean, their tagline is like, "Forget about servers. Write your app, and then just like throw this API key in, and you get the. It's like a million or five million requests per month for free. Uh, push notifications, like some crazy number of push notifications for free, and it, it's it's. It's too soon for me to say, like, I'm going to marry it, but I might marry it. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely um, have a, like, a good relationship going there. Yeah, we're, we're in the heavy petting stage. Yeah, <laughs> the heavy petting stage. <laughs> nice. It's, it's pretty much, it's like what I, it's very close to, it's not quite what I want. I still, my dream, my API dream is to write documentation in Happy Docs that creates an API. But yeah, we, I've been thinking about about an an, an updated version of Happy Docs mm. lately. Yeah, we haven't talked about Happy Docs in a while. Copious free time. <laughs> I feel like Happy Docs got to a, a maturity level where it could plateau and just live on its own for a little while, and that's why. Yeah, yeah, um, it's um, it works works well for for what we needed to do for now. And there's a couple of things I'd like to like to see added, but it's 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 there and it's stable. And um, you know, maybe I'll maybe I'll do a, a rewrite someday or or an, an upgrade someday and and add in that stuff. So hopefully I'll I'll have time to at some point. Yep. So if the dear listener, if you aren't familiar with Happy Docs. It is for documenting your APIs. So if you, if you, we know you don't want to do your documentation, but it's better for everyone if you do, especially if you do it before you start coding. And it's really easy to yes, do, do it, it in first. Happy Docs. Yes, do it first. You'll thank us later. Yes, documenting first is like designing for developers. <laughs> Which is to say... That didn't come out like I meant for it to, but... <laughs> I had, on that topic, though, I have to tell you, I was gonna, I was, I was gonna try to not bring this up because I don't, I'm, I don't want to go on tangents now that people are transcribing it. The podcast it makes me feel like an idiot. 
but I saw the <laughs> most, this blew my mind the other day. So I consider myself a developer and I think there's a lot of, a lot of times a strong division between someone who's a good developer and someone who's a good designer. It's like a different thought process. And mm-hmm. not a lot of people can straddle that fence. You actually do it pretty well, but not a lot of people can. Thank you. You're welcome. I saw this uh, post, and I think it was Samantha Warren's style tile site, where she talked about a process for creating style tiles. And it started out with interviewing the client and then picking the adjectives out of their narrative and basing your 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 sort of style elements off the adjectives, which makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. But what blew my mind about that was that I was following along reading it, knowing what she was going to say before I even read it, until she said the word adjectives. Because as a developer and previously a database guy creating ERDs and, you know, energy relationship diagrams and and data models, you you totally ignore adjectives and you only listen for nouns. And I was like, Oh my God, that's the best. That is like the best analogy I've ever stumbled across for the difference between developers and designers is that designers care about nouns and developers care about adjectives. Did that backwards. Did I? Yeah. <laughs> you meant, you meant designers care about adjectives. Developers care about nouns. Yes. That's what I meant. It's true though. It's have, like, have another beer. Yeah. All right. Cheers. <sighs> but yeah, it is. It is. You know, sometimes sometimes developers care about verbs. Good point. But we seldom think about adjectives. Good point. You know what? I would say I would say it's the database guys that care about the nouns, and the developer, the sort of like the the middleware guys and gals care about the verbs. Yeah, whereas designers are all about the adjectives and adverbs. Yeah, very. Stri- it was striking. It was striking. So anyway, that's just a quick tangent. Hopefully that wasn't too annoying. <laughs> So so wait a second. So we've been talking about Elastic Block Store, and then we were just talking about designers. Maybe it's time to talk about stretchy wireframes. <laughs> yes, spaghetti frames. Yes, yeah, spaghetti frames. So last week we talked about um, a process for responsive web design because uh, I am I am in the I, I, I'm trying to come up with a non-negative term. I wanted to say the depths of development on a responsive site but it's that sounds bad but it's actually fun we're in the uh getting into the nitty-gritty of it let's just say of a responsive web design um, project for a a company that has a lot of stakeholders so the design and i know i know some of the gang are in our dear listener pool so um I don't want this to come out the wrong way, but the the, the actual the complexity is from is coming from the the wide range of stakeholders more than the actual uh, technical aspects of the project. Does that make sense? Yeah, just a, a lot of people involved in the decision making. Right, and so how do you communicate? So like, so like, you know, I I sort of walk in and you know, like these are the this is the spec, these are the goals. All right, and like I can picture the whole thing, but you have to get approval along the way for, you know, you have to like convince people along it like before it's done, 
that it's going to be fine. And when you in the in the old school way, you know, you'd create a Photoshop comp and be like, here's this, you know, nine, you know, a thousand pixel wide or you know, nine hundred and sixty pixel wide Photoshop document, and here's what the website's going to look 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 like. What do you think? And they would say yes or no, or you know, make right. the logo bigger, or you know, move. We want this from option one and that from option two. So with a responsive web design where it's kind of evolving the whole way and everybody's evolved involved all along the process it's more the whole process is more iterative and and organic so there's not really anything to sign off on at the beginning yeah that and that's that can be really intimidating for a client not not having something solid to sound off on right like you'd think that they would kind of I, I realize it's different I realize that it's a change but it sounds like it would be more attractive to say, look, you don't, you don't have to make up your mind now because we are going to involve you throughout the entire process and you can keep changing stuff until the very end. All we, we don't really need an approval from you on Friday. What we really need from you is, is, is confirmation that we're still going in the right direction. And if there are any corrections we need to make... Right. Then just share the corrections, and we'll make them for next week, and we'll we'll sort of nudge our way to a group goal. But, and I'm not saying they don't like that, but they're definitely not used to it. That sounds that sounds like agile. But yeah, it, well, it very much is, or like whatever you want to call it, just yeah. like, like scrums. It's like a weekly sprint, or whatever, like whatever terminology you want to put on it. We're basically saying we're basically doing the whole stack of development. But starting with, starting with like a, in a cascade fashion. So like, so okay, let's do mobile first static wireframes for the login, just for example. And okay, you know, show that to the client. The client has some changes. Okay, incorporate the changes into the static wireframes and then make like interactive or dynamic wireframes with HTML. And, and then... Right. And then the 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 visual designer goes back and starts doing the mobile first static wireframes for the next page, and then I'm doing the the dynamic wireframes, and then so now you can see what they would look like, you know, at, at different breakpoints and see how they would respond in a fluid browser window, and and okay, so then there's like a, a like a not a not an approval like an approval is the wrong word. But it's like they look at those and it's like, oh, yeah, 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 we can see how that's working. But it still looks like a wireframe, but now it's stretchy. Mm-hmm. Having these meetings, we started to have a problem with the term wireframe because the client, understandably, was getting confused with like, well, wait a second, I thought we already looked at the wireframes. And I'm like, well, no, these are the HTML wireframes. Or like, I didn't know what to call them. You know, there's no terminology for it. Yeah, there's, there's really not a terminology for responsive. Yeah. It's like, what do you call it? So I went on Twitter and I was like, we need a new name for this. And Mike Mullaney from Sencha like completely struck gold, I think. Because he was like, we should call them spaghetti frames. <laughs> 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 Which is the funniest thing I ever heard. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, t- so the next meeting when I present them, I'm going to drop the word spaghetti frames and see how they react. And if they laugh, I'm sticking with it. <laughs> I'm going with it. Yeah. We get wireframes from the, the the visual designer UX guy, and then I do the spaghetti frames. And that's 
if I had a business card, that would go on my business card. I do spaghetti frames. <laughs> do spaghetti frames. Yeah, that's 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 perfect. Because it's still you know, it's still kind of kind of that that line art sort of sort of look and feel you get of a wireframe, but you know it's stretchy. It's it's bendy. It's flexible. It's like a it's like a it's like a wet noodle. <laughs> right. Exactly. We went back and forth. There were a few ideas like elasticated and you know like like waistband for like you know like wire weight. It, nothing flowed. So I'm gonna I'm gonna be a spaghetti yeah, framer. Yeah, I mean they're 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 not mock-ups because you think of that more of a refined design sense. They're not prototype, not really prototypes. They're still very very much. I mean I haven't seen them, but I'm assuming from what you're describing, they're still very much reminiscent of a wireframe. You know maybe you've got some solid blocks in there as opposed to just line art type stuff. But but yeah, it's it's not refined enough to really call a mock-up or a prototype. Right. Yeah, it's basically like it's like you said. It's gray boxes with like a thick black border, and it's like all grayscale. And there's some lorem ipsum, and the only copy that's in it is the stuff that's actually functional, uh, like some of the some of the uh, field labels and things like that. Field labels, call to action. Yeah, all that stuff, all that stuff, because we kind of need to get that worked out early and agreed on, because sometimes people really fight about that. Um, but all the promo language is just lower mipsum right now. So yeah, they're they're definitely wireframes. There's no doubt about that. But it's like, but they're stretchy. So <laughs> spaghetti frames were born. Thank you, Mike Mullaney. Yeah, because rubber band frames just doesn't quite have the the same flow. Yeah, elastic frames. It's felt forced. Spaghetti frame. I just love it. I love it. If I get a tattoo, that's gonna be sp- it's gonna be spaghetti frames. <laughs> You know, John's down in the basement doing macaroni art again. <laughs> <laughs> Get Cooper to help you with it. <laughs> yeah, he's really actually he's the pro, so I've got a lot to learn from him. At the macaroni art. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We we just yeah. we just uh, we just introduced him to the macaroni wheels, which was a big deal. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So speaking about speaking of things that get bigger. We have a growing obsession with Jackbooks. <laughs> yeah, my segues, my segues are weak this week. These are not good segues. <laughs> you've you've had a, had a couple of beers tonight, haven't you? <laughs> a couple. It's I've been up since five a.m. It's not that bad. Yeah, you see, you seem more tired than anything. But I've had I've had a rough day too. So it's <laughs> like whatever. I'll just go with it. Right. <laughs> yes, yes, Jackbooks. Yeah, and I have to admit, I have to say that that. For some reason, when I originally said that, and even when we talked about it afterwards, I never made the, I never, like, like, my mind never, <laughs> never went into the gutter, which is weird because usually it does. Yeah, sorry, it dragged you down there. I know it's like now I'm like, oh geez, I don't know if we should call it that, but it is pretty funny. Yeah, because we were talking about attaching all of this, all this media content to books, and like, well, the porn industry will love it, right? <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this has like 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 Fifty Shades of Grey written all over it, and then it's like oh, and they're called Jack Books, which is just it's like uh, uh, I don't know. It might be a little might be a little too might be a little too much even for me. But the concept, if the dear listener missed last week's episode, is in our humble opinion extremely cool, which is uh, 
adding metadata to a narrative, a linear narrative that would allow you to, as a developer to create like a reader or a player that mashed up, uh, multi, like created a multimedia mashup experience around the book. So the experience of the book would become much more, uh, well, jack, you'd be jacked into the book. Like you, all your, well, not all your senses, but like your eyes, ears, it, on in multiple channels would be plugged into the book in a way that I, I I think and I think we both think is just like would be unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it'd be awesome. I actually bought a couple domain names and we were been talking about putting together like a uh, a spec for a format and we've got some I don't know I, I feel like we've made some headway. Yeah, I think I think we have. We had some. You know, it took a little bit of poking around initially to try and find, you know, is there is there anything already out there that exists in terms of a markup language or, or a spec that we could we could base things off of, because we have to have, but we discovered pretty quickly early on that we'll have to have a way to like we'll need to like overlap some tags and things like that. So, it gets kind of kind of interesting in that respect because it's not necessarily you're not necessarily like writing. I mean, you could conceivably come up with ways, but you could also conceivably not necessarily be writing like well-formed XML or, or something like that. Right. Yeah. The question the question came up was like, well, what happens if two tags overlap? Because you've got this you get this markup situation. There's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of weird issues because you've you're trying to embed metadata into structured data. So imagine imagine. For example, you were going to create like a um, a calendar application that stored its data in XML, and you wanted to have nodes that represented months, and you wanted nodes that represented weeks, and you wanted them, you know, all in the same document, but like in line. Like obviously, you could have a section for weeks, and you could have a section for months, and you can set up like. You could do like go crazy with RDF and come up with some like cluster bang of a format that that stored it, but it's a it's a huge hack. What you really want to do is overlap the tags and not duplicate the data. And it's it's like that months weeks thing, so they don't line up, but they're both containers for days. So how do you contain your days in two different non uh, non nested containers? They're not non-nested, non-repeating. Because especially when you're talking about large blocks of text, you don't want to repeat. Exactly. Yeah. There are two. Right. You can't. Because like, what happens if there's a? Because we're talking about books here, so that's a fair amount of content, even though it's text. So, what happens if you've got, um, you know, a, a, a region that consists of the entire book, or maybe uh, three chapter, the first three chapters, and then another one that that's like chapters two, three, and four. And you want to have different metadata around those. You don't want to repeat an entire book plus two chapters each per tag. You know, it doesn't. It's it doesn't make sense from a performance standpoint. I don't think. Right. So we came up with um, at least three or four possible ways to represent the data. I think one of them did use overlapping tags, but it was. I mean, I hated it. It was like unreadable. Yeah, it was incredibly incredibly verbose. Yeah, it was just it was brutal. It was like hard to get your head around. It wasn't like on the one hand, mentally, conceptually, you're like, oh, I just want to overlap these tags. But when you actually express it 
on a, in a text document, it's not it's not easy to look at or read or understand. So it's kind of like even though it's easy to say, it's hard to express. Yeah, yeah, and and trying to validate it would be a nightmare. If yeah, if if even because like it basically involved get ready for this, dear listener, involved having attributes on the closing tags. So like in HTML and XML, there's no attribute on a closing tag. And the way that we we came up with it was like, all right, well, if we're not nesting all of our elements, we have to differentiate closing tags so that we know which thing is being closed. Because it's not just the last one that got opened, which is the way that it normally works. So you can either have... Um, you know, you oh, there. I said it again. I said you know. You can have, op, You can have unique tags for everything. Like every single open tag is basically an ID, and then when you close it, you're closing the ID so that you know what it is. But that's not easy to read or generate. So it was like, well, all right, let's let's just close the, t- the piece of the tag that we want to close. It was kind of like. Uh, it's sort of hard to describe, but it was like if you said uh, like uh, paragraph class equals blue, then in the closing tag for the paragraph, instead of just being slash p, it would be slash p class equals blue. So you'd know which... Yeah, you're closing the adjective, basically. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so my developer brain recoiled against that one. <laughs> I don't want to close adjectives. because it was an ugly mess. <laughs> Yeah, I think any designer brain would have recalled too. It was a, a, and it was like you know, and there were a lot of practical practical concerns. Like, what tool? Like, like there's no tool that's going to code fold this. There's no way to validate it without writing your own parser. You know, there's like, it just wasn't. It just wasn't feasible. So then we came up with a couple of other formats that were more like that capitalized on the fact that the that the the document was not a website, but it was like a long linear stream of text, you know, a novel, let's say, and just used all self-closing tags. So everything, every piece of metadata that you added as a tag to the source text was self-closing so that you're basically saying at any point in time, the uh, these are the tags or the bits of metadata, metadata values, I think I ended up calling them, the metadata values that were active for that passage. And they would remain active until right. you hit another self-closing tag, and then they would change to whatever the new ones were. Right, and if you wanted if you wanted an adjective to continue on, then you'd just put it in the new, in the new tag. Right, so every one that you stumbled across in the timeline, basically, completely replaced whatever came before it. It was like, it was like, you know, the very beginning of the book, it's like, the first tag is like red. And then two paragraphs in, you go red, yellow. And then three paragraphs in, you go red, blue. Now yellow's gone, but you still have red, blue. But you have to persist that red. And if you want that red to last for the entire book, like if it's a, you know, if it's a cold days, like the Dresden novel, cold days, and you want the entire thing to have like, uh, magic associated with the entire book or like like uh you know cult. humor cult or whatever <laughs> like if there's if there's an adjective you want to apply a piece of a metadata value you want to apply to the entire book you'd have to include it in every single tag because there's no inheritance it would it would be all just you know rote 
sort of dumb, uh, I don't know, copy-paste, you know what I mean? It's like the opposite yeah. of dry. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's, it gets, could get really, really kind of tedious. Yeah, very tedious, right. And actually pretty large, because if you had, yeah. we're imagining a scenario where, where the tagging is not being done by an author or an editor, but maybe being t done by like an entire, you know, like the internet, like a bunch of people who are interested in tagging cold days, say, uh, you know, all these Dresden fans tag this book up. And if you've got all these different people doing that, then you're going to have, you know, you could have thousands of tags that are happening at, all over the place throughout the book, every other word. And that would just, it would be like, you know, the book's size would just be like huge. Yeah. So, so we figured so that wasn't going to work, but I, there were things that I liked about it, but the, the problem with it was that uh, it didn't allow for inheritance. So the other thing I liked about it was it got around the, the nesting thing, and you could embed it in lots of different kinds of documents and not invalidate the documents. So you could stick it in a markdown document because that accepts HTML. And you could stick it in mm -hmm. an XML document, an HTML document. You could stick it in an ebook because that's basically just HTML. So anyway, we finally took, I think the, the favorite one is the hybrid approach. Yes, yes. You'll, and I, I don't remember the specifics on this because it was really late at night when I looked at it. But I do remember I know that was your favorite and it was, it was mine as well. Yeah, I think it makes I think it's a, a nice blend where it allows for inheritance, but it's also very it, it doesn't interfere too much with the underlying document, regardless of the underlying document's format, which is uh, to to be exactly like the last one we just described, where each tag is a, like a self-closing tag, but there are three kinds of tags. So there's the there's basically a a tag that says is an is tag that says uh, it overrides anything that came before it, just like the previous example, and it says the tags at this point in the document until you hit another one are red, yellow, and blue. And then you can stumble off a, across a tag that is an is tag that is like the tags now are purple and red. And so now from that point forward in the book, the tags are purple and red. <clears throat> and so that's the is tag. And then there's an there's a plus tag that takes whatever the current tags are and adds new adjectives to them. And you're like, okay, yeah. so we've got purple and red, and then add blue. So now you've got purple, red, and blue. So it gives you kind of like an inheritance, but with a self-closing tag, so you don't have to have nesting. So, and then of course you have minus, where you can say, okay, you know, get rid of blue at this point, and so what ends up happening is you get all self-closing tags, so you don't have any nesting, which won't interfere with, the, which therefore interferes with no popular format, and uh, yeah, you don't you don't have to repeat everything. Yep, exactly. And yeah, and so and and it works for like a, a wide number of formats, like certainly all the popular ones that I can think of. Or you could have, you could even have. It'd be easy to imagine subtle variations on the technique, like you could embed them in a blog post using HTML comments, and then just have a, a parser that was looking for comments that had a particular tag, you know, like uh, conditional comments for IE or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I feel like I feel like it could get kind of difficult to to manage tagging large bodies of text without, like, maybe some kind of good visual editor for. I don't know. Um, 
Because I mean, you have to you have to remember what's open, or you have to remember what's there before you can add and subtract from it. Oh, totally. Yeah, you you'd and have to be able you, to if you've been adding and subtracting tags all along. Yeah, you'd be lost. So you'd you'd have to be able to drop the cursor anywhere in the book and have it tell you what tags were active at that point. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Which means it would have to back up until it found the first is tag and then back itself, you know, it would back up until it hit an is tag and then it would come forward and do all the plus and minus until it got back to where you were. Which might be yeah. a li- might be a little bit slow for the uh uh might be a little bit slow for the which I think is good because it puts the performance constraint, it puts the performance challenge on the editor, the the authoring process, which is much more controlled than the uh, consumption process, the reading process. So the the regular app, a reader app, could be a lot, could be very dumb. Yeah, because it'll just start from the beginning and and go straight forward. Right. It doesn't have to do a lot of a lot of searching and backtracking logic. Right, and there's all sorts of caching you could do to be like, oh, you know, like. At the beginning of each chapter, this is the tag state. At the beginning of each, at the beginning of the book, this is the tag state. At the beginning of each section, this is the tag state. You could do all sorts of things, uh, depending on how many tags you wanted yeah. to support. So, and, you know, this is probably probably all sounds like super academic, but the the uh, if you didn't listen last week, the concept is that you would be able to uh, imagine a reader application that was like, you know, you've got this like Jackbook reader on your. Uh, iPad, <laughs> and it it uh, you can also airplay it to your TV, your Apple TV, and you're like, and you've got all these channels to choose from. So you could say, okay, here's the book. I'm I'm reading the text of the book. I've also got the audio book, and it's like whisper synced together with uh, just the regular Amazon whisper sync. Plus, I've got this metadata throughout the book that that my Jackbook reader is capitalizing on to like search the internet for um, uh, soundtrack uh, soundtrack type stuff that meets the you know so it like so it like takes those tags the metadata and it searches SoundCloud for it and it retrieves a bunch of found audio that I can mix in at a level that's like listenable between you know I'm listening to the audiobook but I also have this soundtrack happening and it could be music or you could say just sound sound effects. Um, or you could also have it pull images or even uh, videos and you could have the, you know, you could have, you could say, oh, I want the images to overlap or I want them to fade or I want the videos to fade in and out. And it probably sounds super distracting, but I think that it would be completely immersive. Yeah, yeah, it's, it depends on, I mean, I can see people just like going totally crazy with marking, marking up uh, and tagging a, tagging a book to death and, and just kind of creating this really distracting sort of sensory overload type type experience but i think if it's done well i agree it could be really really immersive kind of you know kind of enhanced experience oh yeah totally and it, it could be done it could go horribly wrong but then what you you end up doing is creating a secondary market for like like yeah i i read cold days i thought it was awesome actually i didn't read it i listened to it but then like tim burton does like a jack book of it and he you know he could sell that and it'd be like, all right, so now I've got, yeah. you know, so I got Tim Burton's mashup basically. Oh, that's the other thing that <clears throat> if the, 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 the way that we've been talking about it so far, we're just talking about like uh, the metadata values being basically simple strings like red and purple or whatever. 
but we were talking about having them also be uh, they could also be URLs to res specific resources so you could get be as vague or specific as you wanted to with your metadata right so the publishers could even use it then to create an, create an experience around the book oh god they could put in ads Jesus oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh shit yeah every time every time Harry grabs a, grabs a coke out of the fridge you'll get a coca-cola commercial <laughs> Product placement. I've often wondered if they had a deal. <laughs> I doubt it. Oh, I definitely thought that. I, I, I doubt it. But yeah, me know. too. Probably just likes Coke. Yeah. So, anyway, I I can't... I know both of we've, we've talked about it. Neither one of us can stop thinking about the possibilities here. So, stay tuned because there's going to be more... There's going to be... There's going to be more Jack booking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll do something with it. Oh, God. So it'd be it would absolutely be stoked to get any feedback from you, the dear listener, about what you think about this. If you think it's completely stupid, or if you think it's the coolest thing you've ever heard of, and have some genius idea for uh, for how you could actually make it work, because there's also the issue of copyright and how does that all work but i'm sure we can figure it out we're from the internet <laughs> from the internet we don't have to worry about little things like copyright do we nah let's create our own content yeah. kidding me cory doctor will be all over this <laughs> he's gonna want this yeah i mean you could you could do something as simple as just using it to illustrate an ebook Oh yeah, yeah, dynamically. You know, I mean, I mean, you could you could go all out with it and create an audio visual experience, or you could do something just as as simple as as illustrating an ebook or like dynamic dynamic illustrations. And yeah, that's uh, the thing. What, what interests me what what interests me is like the like the social component. Once you once you open up and allow like anybody to to create their own version of something mm -hmm. and mix them. Yeah. The the only thing I'm wondering is like, would you be able to pay attention to the book while all this is going on? Yeah. And then the, I guess yeah. the, that begs the question: Does it matter? Because are you entertained or not? Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Because if you're still entertained, you know, arguably, what difference does it make? I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure, in the author's eyes, it makes a big difference. But <laughs> yeah, you know, you're you're using using the using the material to create an experience and. And you know, I guess it's debatable whether or not that that um, written text needs to directly be directly included in that experience or not. Or yeah, or if it's subliminal. So it's like the you know the the iTunes visualizer that has that sort of like spirograph thing that sort of corresponds to the song you're listening to. Yeah, that like goes along to the beats of the music. Yeah, it's exactly that, but for a book. And every single line is created by a different person. <laughs> so it's exactly the same thing, basically. <laughs> <laughs> except for the parts that aren't. Yeah, except for all those things. So anyway, there you have it, folks. That's our show for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. I'm Kelly Shaver. And we hope you join us again next week for the Niche Podcast. Bye. Bye.